Welcome and thank you for joining Speak Up for Safer Care. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, Patient Safety Division at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, where it is our mission to challenge traditional thinking to eliminate preventable harm. Speak Up for Safer Care illuminates gaps in care, process, or design that leads to preventable harm in all healthcare settings. I'm your host, John Sims, Director of Safer Care Texas, and joining me is our co-host, Leanne Cunningham, Strategic Operations Assistant Director. Good afternoon, John. All right. And today, our guest is Dr. Emmanuel George. Thank you for joining us, Dr. George. Thank you guys for inviting me. You bet. So Dr. Emmanuel George III serves as the Associate Dean of Students and Alumni Affairs and an Associate Professor in the Health Science Center College of Pharmacy at the University of North Texas Health Science Center. Before joining the Health Science Center, Dr. George worked in multiple pharmacy practice settings, including regional pharmacy supervisor for a community pharmacy chain. Dr. George has expertise in operationalizing healthcare events, including mass immunization clinics, health and wellness, and interprofessional education. A native of New Orleans, Louisiana, Dr. George is a graduate of Xavier University of Louisiana with a Doctor of Pharmacy degree and is a graduate of Luther Rice College and Seminary with a Master's in Leadership. Dr. George, that's an impressive uh, bio. Is Did I miss anything? Is there anything you want to add? Man, you know, besides uh, being a, a doting husband and loving father of two beautiful girls, I think you got it all. It's kind of, you, you made me sound a lot more impressive than uh, I actually think of myself. So thank you for that. I appreciate your humility, but I think others, especially our listeners, would disagree. So let's get started. Can you explain what makes opioids different from non-opioid pain relief medications. Definitely. Sounds like you're just ready to jump on in. So um, opioids are a synthetic version of what most of us may know as opiates. Um, uh, opioids and opiates, they, they basically interact differently in your body by blocking the pain signals that, you know, to let your brain know that you're actually in pain. When we think about some of the non-pharmacological or the non-opioid pain relievers, they work in multiple ways. You know, you may think of um, your acetaminophen, which has Tylenol or ibuprofen, which is um, your Motrin or Advils that are over the counter, those medicines help to block nerve uh, uh, how pain is received, but also works on inflammatory processes. There's other medications that work with uh, singling of like the actual nerve endings. Um, but the opioids themselves, they are synthetic versions of opium and um, opiates. Uh, you guys may know them as poppy or heroin or codeine or kind of the natural versions of that. But again, opioids are the synthetic versions of pain relievers. Okay. Thank you for that. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about uh, we're in an opioid epidemic and, and a lot of that was superseded by the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, right? But we're still in the midst of an opioid epidemic. So what makes opioids uh, dangerous or potentially dangerous, I should say? Two, two things specifically. So there are synthetic versions of opiums like opiates, like I mentioned earlier, um, but they're oftentimes much more powerful. And they also have the tendency of being, um, they bind to the receptors in your body, the ones that I referenced earlier, in such a way that they lead to both mental, 
physical, psychological potentiality for addiction. Um, because ultimately they, they bind to these receptors, they tell your body and they help to mask the pain. Basically they interrupt the signaling between where your areas that may be hurting to the brain themselves. And like I said, they have a, this tendency to be a lot more addictive than once thought. So it, it sounds like that opioids don't directly, but indirectly improve your pain, right? So they, they kind of trick your brain, if you will, into your body doesn't really, it doesn't perceive pain because it's blocking that receptor. That's exactly what's happening. Uh, if you think of it like a game of telephone, um, uh, you and your listeners may remember that game when you were a kid where one person would start out and it's a brown dog. And when you pass that signal or that message across multiple people whispering from ear to ear, then all of, all of a sudden it's a dragon who ate the blue dog. Um, basically what the opioids do, they stop that, that communication. So that's like removing, literally stopping the communication of the whispering from one ear to the next. And that's basically what happens. So you still have that ailment that's going on, that inflamed finger, that cut on your hand, that broken bone. But what happens is, is that the opioids, they block on these receptors that literally stop the communication from that site to tell your brain something's going on. So it just disrupts that communication. Uh, that's a great analogy, by the way. So Dr. George, how should patients with long-term opioid use for chronic pain management how should they approach a physician who underprescribes pain relief for an acute injury? Mm -hmm. Definitely. Well, when we think about pain um, associated with acute injury, obviously opioids are in fact um, a very reasonable and most effective choice for patients use. Because what I want your audience to know is that opioids aren't ultimately the, the problem or the issue. It's how are the pain holistically managed. So if to answer a question directly, if an individual is having long-term chronic pain, the doctor and physician should use multiple modalities where they're using possibly not only just opioids, but also there's a component of maybe um, nerve blockers, or anti-inflammatories, but then also other things such as yoga, meditative practices, awareness, self-awareness as well. So long-term, you want to look at it in the, the multiple modalities approach to pain management, because the one thing that we have to be very mindful of when it comes to opioids, like I mentioned earlier, that, uh, that potentiality for dependency is real, physiologically, mentally. Um, so again, we have to be aware of that. So using multiple methods on how to uh, treat pain is, is key. Now, if it's an acute injury, so we're talking acute, less than, you know, maybe three months, we know something happened, you had a very specific surgery, then obviously opioids are very well uh, utilized choice. But again, it's also being able to communicate with the provider that you are still experiencing some pain to, so that the provider practitioner can actually figure out what best works for the patient themselves. But I would also say, make sure that you're not, you're advocating for yourself and continue to speak up. And I think most providers will be open to that conversation as well. So that brings me to my next question. I'm a caregiver. So how can caregivers advocate for their relatives and their patients when too little or too much pain medicine is being prescribed? Well, I will definitely start with the second half of that question when too much pain medicine is being prescribed. Because I think, you know, as pain is, is a real thing that can inhibit or prohibit proper recovery. And as an advocate, someone who's sitting with your loved one or who's there, even not even if it's a loved one, but it's a, a you're a caregiver for a patient and you see paying attention to how is it affecting the quality of life? You know, because obviously we know individuals, they may want to avoid the pain. They may want to make sure that they're not feeling those things or even 
getting ahead of it. You know, sometimes that's a challenge as well. People don't want to experience pain, so they take their medicine a lot more around the clock versus as per needed. So paying attention to your patient or the, your loved one, seeing how they're interact or reacting to the medicine. Are they still cognitive? Are they able to function? Are they still able to live or just stay sleeping all the time? Because that's one of the things that these medicines do as well. Um, a severe side effect of this is in fact drowsiness or sleepiness, right? So again, if your loved one is, you know, not cognitive, they're not around, they're, they're basically in a stupor, can't interact through just normal daily living activities, that might be where you may want to speak up of how can we adjust the dose downwards or could we try, again, the different modalities of how to treat such pain. And that same thing also goes for under treatment as well. Um, are they able to function? Are they still able to live their life and do some activities? Um, because obviously, um, under treating the medicine, uh, excuse me, the pain will also inhibit recovery. And the goal is to not necessarily always be on these medicines, but it's again, to be able to live life, do things, still be vibrant and have a good quality of life as well. Absolutely. I have a question for you though. Yeah, Is go it ahead. true that it can change your personality? Really? Uh, you, I, I don't know if I'm asking this correctly, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. In my family, we've had the opportunity to take care of someone who's had an injury. Yeah. And after a couple of times, it tends to affect his personality. It mm -hmm. makes him angry. It yeah. makes him almost neurotic in his inability to focus. Is that a, is that a, a side effect? So what I'll say is this way is that, you know, these medicines do have a cycle uh, effect associated with them. They do affect those receptors. When we think about these opioid receptors that are naturally occurring in your body, they are in multiple places, you know, uh, throughout your entire system, you know, from your digestive tract to the nerve endings to even components of your brain. So what I would say is that it, it's a possibility um, just because of the fact of where they work in general. But then also remember, we have to think about when a person is interacting with pain, that is something something that literally can affect their psyche of how they're thinking going forward. And these medicines definitely can contribute to that as well, if there's potentially a predisposition or the dosing could affect that as well. well thank you for that, Dr. George. Yeah, I have a few, uh, a few questions to ask about pain relief. And so to start with, you know, as an RN, a registered nurse, we never want our patients to, to suffer unnecessarily. First point I want to, um, I want to make is that I think we we advised patients wrongly, whether it was uh, intentional or unintentional, that perhaps you should have no pain. You should take medication so that you have no pain. And we know that pain is uh, it's part of a, an immune response, right? The the uh, anti-inflammatory. So if we injure ourselves, then there's going to be inflammation there while the body tries to repair itself. So speak a little bit about talking about that with a patient, um, about the realistic expectations when it comes to their, um, their pain relief. Well, I think you, you brought something keen up to talk about the idea of no pain. The reality of that is, is that the goal is not to have zero pain. To have zero pain, I would imagine there'll be, for some patients, a level of unconsciousness that they would have to experience so that they don't feel the pain. But as uh, with some studies have actually shown, even when persons are not cognitive, they their body systems still are reacting to the pain, even though they're just not there to articulate it. So I think to your point, zero pain is probably not realistic. It's about still being able to function. It's still being able to kind of put forth the quality of life. Because when we put it in context of, if I just saw if a patient had 
has had major surgery where they had to have literally an open bypass where they're, you know, they are, they have the zipper, you know, there's a, a we cut through layers of skin, we cut through bone, we've done all types of things on internal organs. The idea of all of those different bodily areas that are affected in zero pain, that's probably not a true expectation to give patients. It's about being able to turn the volume down a little bit. So I think about our podcast and the listeners. Um, hopefully, I'm not too uh, loud with them. They could always do what? Turn it down a little bit if my my accent is not what they like to hear, or if they if my voice is too loud. If our tech on the backside, the technical difficulties that they can turn the volume down. That's ultimately what we're trying to do with a, a patient's pain. We want to turn it down in such a way that they're able to move forward to aid in their recovery, but then also start to get back to a quality of life that they're able to live. Because that's what this is all about: is allowing patients to live, not just tolerate or uh, suffer through things. Sure. Yeah. Another great point. Boy, I'm glad you're on the show, Dr. George. <laughs> so I, when I got out of nursing school, it was 1999 and it was brand new. I remember going to several trainings on pain relief and how we're treating patients for pain. And a lot of it was we're not adequately treating patients for pain because of the danger of opioids. And so one of the things that I recall hearing repeatedly in, in all those trainings was that the risk for addiction is, uh, is less than 1%. And shortly thereafter, pain scores, so a zero to 10 pain score, many people have been asked that question, um, were considered a fifth vital sign, which a pain score is subjective, right? Uh, all other vital signs are objective. So tell, tell, tell us a little bit about, was there what harm, if any, might potentially be created through a message like that? So what I think is that, you know, again, I want to make sure you and your listeners are, are clear. Pain is something that definitely needs to be treated appropriately so that individuals, it aids in the recovery. Um, as we all know, if I, I was an athlete my whole life, football, basketball, and track, and you know about the ideas of those aches and pains that come with working out. You know, being on a track is never comfortable playing football, you know, broken fingers and things of that nature. So again, it definitely affects performance from a sport athlete perspective, but it also can impede, again, a patient's quality of life if pain is not treated appropriately. So I do want to make sure your audience knows that pain scores or their perception of pain is definitely, uh, it's vital to their their recovery, but then also their quality of life. Um, I think what to what you spoke of, so I graduated a little bit after you, um, I do remember that, you know, the pain score was one of them, you know, the fifth vital sign. But what I think probably happened over time, and I think these things just happen, is that the education around what that meant definitely was maybe not translated from generation of healthcare provider going forward. And what I think um, occurred was we stopped talking about it as patients' perception of pain and helping them to qualify what is a zero versus what a 10. Mm -hmm. I remember, speaking of high school athlete, um, I remember turning my ACLs in um, football accident. And I remember being in the hospital right after my surgery. And I remember the, the nurses, you know, love them to death, but they would always be like, what's your pain today? <laughs> zero to 10. And I'm what, a seven, 16 year old kid. I, I don't know what a zero is. I don't know what a 10 is. And I'm asking to arbitrarily rate this without any quality of what a zero to a 10 is. So I was unable to quantify it. Um, so again, to your point, leaving it up to the subjection of the patient, which is okay, but it's also uh, helping them calibrate their 
expectations, but then most importantly, calibrating their perception of what pain is and what should happen. I just had a major knee surgery where I was cut. They took a quarter of my, uh, one third of my patella tendon and reinserted it through my knee to give me this new um, uh, ACL, anterior cruciate ligament. And I don't know. Am I supposed to be at a zero? Am I supposed to be at a 10? I don't know. But I, I know from that experience, um, I was not given the proper information or education as to what is a zero and 10 means. And I think that's where we may have lost our way is, again, helping patients to identify both their expectations and also perceptions of pain as well. Now, now one thing that that uh, that has been done and I know is still utilized today, if you go into a, a hospital room, that zero to 10 score is associated with the FACES scale. Right. And so you got somebody who's smiling, that's a zero. And then you got somebody that's just horribly uh, grimacing and that's a 10. And then you have the teenager that never smiles. So what is that one is my question. <laughs> that is a great question. I don't know if there's anything that I get to get some of us to smile in our teenage years. So that, that's probably another podcast for another day. <laughs> Absolutely. So as healthcare professionals, we have two ethical responsibilities, one being non-malfeasance, which means to do no harm, and the other beneficence, I never say that word correctly, uh, but that means to do good, provide benefit. And I think that applies here when we talk about pain. We don't, we want to provide pain relief, but we don't want to be harmful while we're managing your pain. So with this in mind, we've talked about uh, zero to 10, a numerical scale and the faces scale. Are there any other tools that we could use that might be better to to understand a patient's um, pain than these other two scales. So what I would say is this: so I like I like how you mentioned you know um, beneficence is what we're we're to do is to try to provide the most benefit. And I think you know and I, I think I, that's why I love being a pharmacist is I'm able to spend time with individuals really providing education. Um, I love the how I'm able to engage with my students. And, and I always tell them, I said, our job as a pharmacist is to not only know the best information, but it's to share that information, whether that's a patient, whether that's a caregiver, or that's a provider. And then it's kind of up to the individuals to decide how they move forward. And I think, you know, education is really kind of the key. And I know we've touched on it on so many points, but it's helping people to root their their point of reference in uh, proper expectations of what good treatment looks like, um, trying to provide for them, you know, the most benefit. And again, it's giving them information so that they can do it. So whether whatever tool you're using, it's about allowing the individuals who are involved with care to make the decisions. Now, I, I know that may not have been exactly what you wanted to hear, but what I will say is this, is that it's working with the patient to help them give them the right frame of, of perce- uh, perspective of what they're supposed to have, proper expectations of what do treatments look like, allowing them to have a multimodal choice on how they um, are we're going to approach their care. Um, because again, it, it's easy and it's a lot more efficient to write someone a prescription and let them walk out of the door, but it's a lot more complex to help the patients address that physical component that's associated with the ailment that they're dealing with. It's a little more difficult to in, engage with them and teach them mindful practices so they can be a lot more aware as to what's going on with their body. It's getting them a lot more connected to care where there might be um, a, a psychosocial aspect of what's going on with them that's amplifying some of the things that they're feeling. But then also there's this 
economic portion that also can impact them as well. Because when we think of pain, I mean, it affects all facets of one's life that needs to be taken in consideration of how do we do care. So again, for some patients, that might be getting them connected to a yoga class to practice mindfulness meditation, but then also mobility. So again, it's looking at it across multiple scales to be able to do the most good for them, but it's also providing the most good options for patients because it may not just be one. They may need multiple options to be able to treat them appropriately, especially, especially long-term. Sounds like a whole health modality. That's exactly what I was going to say, Leanne. That sounds textbook whole health. Thank you for sharing that. No, it, de- it definitely is. And I think, you know, um, over over time, we're learning so much more about people as individuals. And I think that's always the interesting part about, you know, why I love being a pharmacist, because I get the opportunity to engage with the person that's in front of me. Um, and they get the, the to engage with them. And I get to really think about all of the aspects that may be affecting them as an individual as I try to, again, negotiate this care between the patient and their provider. So is it the love for education that inspired you to become a pharmacist and a teacher? What I'll say is this, is that I, uh, back in those days, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have agreed with you. If you would have talked to me when I was maybe a second year or third year pharmacy student, um, education was probably the furthest thing from my mind. But when, you know, sometimes life is better understood looking back versus looking forward. You know, some people will call it um, hindsight is 2020. But when I think about my journey, what I will, I think that's a great point, Ms. Cunningham, is the idea that I've probably always been an educator. I've always been someone who was trying to help people understand what and why to the best of my abilities, but then also providing them options. So it's amazing how my life path has gotten me to where I am today of not only being a pharmacist, being a trainer, an educator of pharmacists of the next generation of healthcare providers, but I think it's it's definitely something that, again, is better understood looking backwards in life than, than, than and again, maybe I would say, back in those days, I would say whatever you probably healthcare provider says, I want to help people. I just didn't know what that meant. I didn't know into what context, and um, I'm very happy for the journey that I've kind of come to at this point. I appreciate that. Thank you. I have one more question for you, though. Sure. Can you describe the risk the public faces for non-prescribed opioids? So I'm assuming you're, you are referencing those that find themselves to the illicit market or find themselves onto the streets or farm parties. The challenge that we face in terms of a public health crisis, to be honest with you, is that these medications are way more powerful than some of the, the drugs of an older age. Right. Um, And what we've learned is that they're so powerful. They have um, that psychosocial. They have the excuse me, psychological. They have the physiological components associated with it. And why is that such a big deal? And why do I keep coming back to that? That that point is what happens is, is that individuals who find themselves with addictive personalities or addiction issues, they always progress towards escalation i.e. the dose that got them that same uh, euphoria, that same high, that same bliss last time may not be the same amount that takes it this time. So they might, instead of taking one, they need two. Two becomes four, right? So again, you have that issue. But then once it makes its way to the illicit marketplace, we have no idea as to, or individuals have no idea as to how these medications are being mixed. We have no ideas of how they're being cut. We have no idea of how they're literally being mixed with other things so that you end up having a lot of accidental 
overdoses because you might, as an individual who gets it from an illicit place, you might think you're taking one thing, but then it was cut with another agent that's a lot more powerful and addictive and almost dangerous for you as well. So then you're having a potentiality of overdosing as well. So get once it gets to those non-prescribed um, sides or in that illicit marketplace, it's significantly dangerous because again, we have, you know, as a healthcare provider, I think about you have an individual who is presenting with signs of overdose Oftentimes, you're talking minutes to be able to save an individual's life. And if I don't know what agent that you might have possibly overdosed on, that delay of care can literally be the difference between life and death. Oh, my, that's a very sobering thought. Yes. Uh, Dr. George, I wanted to ask one, one question about that real quick. So what I have noticed in the last several years is that the number of pills is greatly reduced. I mean, and now we can monitor. So somebody who might be addicted and presenting to ver- to clinics or to emergency rooms with an ailment, they should be able to go all over, you know, all over the place and get a new prescription. Um, and now we, we can monitor that. And I think that's a, that's a great step in the right direction. But what about those people who come to you and say, this is just, this is wearing my life out. You know, I know that I'm addicted uh, I'm having withdrawal symptoms without it, so I'm going to. I'm going to. Uh, that's why I'm trying to get it, so I don't get sick. How do you manage that? How do you manage that withdrawal? You you ask some tough questions because it's not one easy answer, sure, right? And sure. I think I think about my students who always they want one answer. What's the right answer, Doctor George? We're like, what's the right answer? Just tell it to me. And you know, you're asking me some tough questions. I feel like I'm on the hot seat because it's not just one answer. Not at all. Healthcare is very complex. And ag- agreed, agreed. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we have right now is this whole topic of addiction is very taboo still in this country. Right. It's still something where, you know, we can't help individuals when they're doing these things in in literally the dark. You know, there's this component of embarrassment. There's this component of I can't handle it myself. So, again, it's taboo in the marketplace. It's that taboo in most most states right now. So if an individual is truly struggling with something, where's the proper outlet? My question is, where's the proper outlet that they can go to handle that? So there are medicines that we can help to transition patients off of. Um, I was actually working with some of the students and we were talking about you. You guys may remember the idea or have seen the methadone clinics, right? And helping them to understand that I was talking to students that understand that one of the main purposes of those methadone clinics are to transition individuals from uh, illicit forms of heroin or other types of opioids, where they transition them to this long-acting methadone, where they can go on and live very highly productive members of society life, where they're not caught because they're longer-acting. Methadone is a longer-acting opioid that helps to transition patients from you know some of the more illicit ones um, to other to other medications. So methadone is one instance of what a uh, uh, addiction, you know, maintenance could look like for a patient. We can go cold turkey, but as I, like I mentioned, that one has physical and me- mental effects that are going cold turkey from some of these medications as well. So number one, I think about how can we make it a little more prevalent of this is something to help patients with, um, to not make it as taboo. Um, number two, what are the appropriate channels that that patient, once they've kind of gotten over that and they're willing to identify themselves and say, yes, I need some help, getting them to the proper care. Because again, I would imagine, um, not even imagine, that is not 
a, a traditional primary care physician who may not know how to help a patient transition. Because again, it's a multimodal approach to get someone who has developed a level of dependency to get them properly off where you go. Do we transition them to other medications? How do we monitor the symptoms? How do we ensure? Because remember, this patient who finds themselves to have dependency, there was an origin of why they were on the medicine. So is that properly being treated and maintained? Um, it was probably a point where that's no longer the issue, that it moved to dependency. But again, are we going backwards to make sure the original ailment has been properly treated and so we can get them off of it as well? And then obviously the multimodal approach of what else are we doing for that patient in terms of support? Are we providing them counseling? Or are they providing their family unit? Because sometimes the environments they may find themselves in may tend them to be a little bit more um, of these addictive personality triggers. So again, how are we helping them with that? That wasn't a challenging answer. You did great on that. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. So Dr. George, in layman's terms, what legislative processes contribute to poor opioid management? Wow, that 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 is a tough question. Um, but I guess the good news is I also help uh, teach pharmacy law here at the college as well. And what I'll say is this, is that the legislative process is always reactive to what's going on to at the local, regional, or national level. Um, everything that we see now, um, I think, you know, from a prescription monitoring program where we now have a database that's able to allow pharmacists, providers to be able to surveil, I guess is the best way to put it, um, how patients are getting their prescriptions. I think that's one level that's contributed to the, the benefits. But I think um, to poor opioid management, I think it's always reactive to how the legislative process works. So with that prescription monitoring service here in Texas, just to give you one example, it requires now that all pharmacists and providers look at that database to determine where in fact, patients are getting their medicines. Um, so again, it's their controlled substances. And it says specifically that we're supposed to check it for opioids, for certain muscle relaxers, and also certain anti-anxiety medicines. And the reason why I say that's poor, I mean, it gives surveillance, but it doesn't allow us the opportunity or the space to really dive into a patient's care. Because what happens is if a patient comes to the doctor's office and that doctor, that provider looks and determines that Emmanuel George has just received an opioid medication a few weeks ago. That doctor may be a little more apprehensive to prescribe me something to continue my care because they may have a perception about what I'm doing or how my care is going. Or you may have pharmacies that are not filling prescriptions for patients based on that history without having a conversation. So I think sometimes legislatively, although good intent, they sometimes allow don't allow proper execution of helping patients to manage um, not only opioids, but also more importantly, Again, got to get back to the patient. How do you manage their care? Well, Dr. George, I just want to say thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise with us today. And thanks to all of our listeners who joined for today's podcast. I want to give a special shout out to our technical producer, Mr. Rob Upchurch, for getting our podcast up and running. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the Patient Safety Division at the Health Science Center here in Fort Worth, Texas. And we are calling you to action. Speak up for safer care. If you're a healthcare worker, counselor, subject matter expert, former patient, or a caregiver, and you have a patient safety story to share, we invite you to be our next guest. Please contact us through our website, safercaretexas.org. Also, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Safer Care Texas. We'll talk again next week, and thank you for listening. Remember, speak up for safer care.